Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. I hope this works. Thanks very much. I'm very proud to be here, but I'm proud because of one and very specific reason. I was just told that this hall was once a church, and now it's a kind of a cultural home for talks, concerts. My God, this is what they were doing to churches in the late 20s and early 30s under Stalin. No, like, you know... <laughs> turning them into homes of culture where they had concerts and so on. So it's nice to be here in the truly Bolshevik part of London. Okay, uh, let me begin with uh, ideology today. The book that I'm supposed to present or rather somehow refer to, Living in the End Times, is basically an attempt to practice again the old half-forgotten art of critique of ideology. First, through a couple of examples, I will simply try to convince you that ideology is well kicking alive and so on. Let me start with an example which may even surprise you. The two big Oscar winners of the last year. One, British one, the King's Speech, and the other one, the Black Swan. I cannot Imagine almost a better example of ideology. Let me begin with the king's speech. The problem of the to-be king, the cause of his stuttering, if you saw the movie, is what? It's his inability to assume his symbolic function, to identify with his title. So I claim, on the contrary, at the beginning of the film, the future king is quite a normal, reasonable person. He simply displays a minimum of common sense, like who can be stupid enough to say, oh my God, it's my divine right to be the king, and so on and so on. And I read a movie as a very sad tale of how to make this guy, who obviously has some intelligence, stupid enough to accept seriously that he is the king. You remember how it happens. Towards the end of the film, uh, the trainer, the Australian trainer, sits on the king's chair. The furious king asks him, how dares he to do this? And the coach replies, why not? What right do you have to sit on this chair and not me? The king shouts back, because I am a king by divine right, to which the coach just nods with satisfaction. I've rendered him stupid enough, now he takes himself seriously, and so on. It's, uh, I think, seriously, that the message is very sad here. It's, you know, we are all the time, from all sides, we are informed how we live in a crisis of authority, male patriarchal authority, of course, the reactionary perception, or rather conservative, of the crisis. And the lesson of the movie is precisely, although you men know that to take your symbolic title, father, master, teacher, king, seriously, it's a little bit stupid, but it's your duty to accept this stupidity, to become stupid enough to play the role of authority. Now, uh, the uh, other film, The Black Swan, I claim, I hope you noticed it, with Natalie Portman and so on, is even much worse. It's truly a kind of anti-feminist counterpart. Uh, it, I claim, resuscitates arguably one of the most reactionary myths about femininity. While in this same masculine universe that we encounter in the king's speech. While a man, if you become stupid enough, at least can have it both. You can have your title, authority, and still have a private life, let's call it. It's an old anti-feminist myth from old 
Fairy Tales up to Kislovsky, Christoph Kislovsky's film Double Life of Veronique, namely this myth that a woman has to make a choice. Your natural place is to withdraw from, from public career, to do your role in the family, if you choose your, let's call it, mission, what you really care about as a career, you will pay the price for it by death. I think these are the coordinates of the second film. So, you see, that's where we are in two of popular films. Men become stupid enough, play your authority. Women don't play with career, you will die. <laughs> now, uh, let me, now, uh, uh, how? Now, let's make a step further through some other examples from movies. Uh, how can we detect this ideological background in popular culture? I think that the basic rule here is to apply the concept which was elaborated by structural linguistics of so-called differentiality. It doesn't only matter what a thing is, it only also matters as its positive feature what a thing is not. It doesn't only matter what you say, it only also matters what you don't say while saying what you say, of what is only implied in saying what you say. <laughs> of course, I hope you know that there is a dialogue, one of the best-known dialogues in Sherlock Holmes' stories. Uh, this one is from Silver Blaze, a dialogue, short dialogue between Detective Gregory and Holmes himself, which provides the best example of differentiality. It's a short dialogue exchange about so-called curious incident of the dog in the ninth time. Here is the dialogue. Is there any other point to which you wish to draw my attention? Asks Detective Gregory Sherlock Holmes. To the curious incident of the dog in the night time. The dog did nothing in the night time. That was the curious incident. Uh, how does this work in ideology? Uh, there is a wonderful joke in Ernst Lubitsch's masterpiece, Ninochka. The hero visits a cafeteria and orders coffee without cream. And here is the wonderful reply of the waiter. Sorry, we have run out of cream. We only have milk. Can I then bring you coffee without milk? <laughs> I think it's absolutely a correct answer. It's not the same thing coffee without cream or coffee without milk. What you don't get, it's part of the identity of what you do get. In what sense? Because uh, if you bring this logic to its extreme, you can also see how a double negation, when you don't have just, when you do not have, in this case, coffee without cream or milk, the result is not zero. Now let's put things in a little bit more serious way. Why do we not see what, nonetheless, in a way, we see in ideology? How does ideology enact this suspension? Uh, I claim, I'm sorry if you know it already, but it's crucial, that there is a, a wonderful, apocryphal probably, anecdote from the First World War, which perfectly renders our predicament today and how we see things that we see but we don't see things that we also see. It's uh, the anecdote about the exchange of telegrams between German and Austrian army headquarters in the middle of the First World War. The Germans from Berlin sent the message to Vienna. Here on our part of the front, the situation is serious but not catastrophic. To which, of course, as you know, the Austrians replied, here the, with us, the situation is catastrophic, but not serious. Is this not more and more the way many of us, at least in the developed world, relate to our global predicament? We all know about the impending catastrophe, ecological, social, and so on. But we somehow cannot take it seriously. In psychoanalysis, this attitude is called a fetishist split. I know very well, but, but what? But I do not really believe it. And I think 
Such a split is a clear indication of the material force of ideology which makes us refuse what we see and know. Let me uh, improvise a little bit here because I think this ideological mechanism is crucial. Uh, this is what I call the fetishist functioning of ideology. The old traditional functioning of ideology was more symptomatic, you know, symptom, like return of the repressed. You base your life on a lie, you repress, ignore some traumatic truth, but as we say it, whatever you do, the repressed will somehow return in one or another symptomatic form. Just to give you a stupid everyday example, the proverbial adolescent who is traumatized by sex and in order to, in order to forget about it, takes refuge in physics and mathematics. But then you know, sooner or later, he tries to resolve a, a task like how much energy is released when two bodies hit, hit each other and so on, and it's there. But uh, much more interesting, I claim, is the fetishist functioning, which, again, is operative today, where you don't deny anything. You just, through a fetish, enact a distance of not really accepting it, not really taking it seriously. Incidentally, as I developed also in this last book, Living in the End Times, this, I think, explains why and how, although we, most of us at least, probably not only believe scientists and in this sense know very well that the situation is potentially uh, catastrophic, but like really are convinced that this is the case, but nonetheless are not ready to do anything. Again, although we know there are threats of catastrophes, we cannot bring ourselves to, to act upon it, to do it. Here, fetish enters. What is fetish? I will repeat an old story of mine, which is very tragic. It happened to a friend of mine who was married and his wife died. Young, beautiful wife, the usual story, you know, she went to a doctor, uh, breast cancer in two months, she was dead. What surprised us, his friends, is that this same lady, sorry, this same guy, after the wife died, was absolutely ready all the time to talk about the most painful moments of the wife dying. You know, we didn't have to play any of these games, or oh, don't mention this in front of him, it will traumatize him. No, he was ready to talk about everything. So we doubted, my God, we started to raise questions. What's going on with this guy? Like, is, did he love his wife at all? Is he kind of a cruel, cynical subject or what? Then we learned the secret. Every time that he was talking about his dead wife and the most painful moments of her death, he was playing with a hamster in his hands, and the hamster was obviously his fetish. This was also uh, the preferred pet animal of his wife, so in a way, playing with the hamster meant I can talk about it, but hamster was the fetishist stand-in for my wife is still alive. I don't accept she is dead. Now you will say, bullshit, this is primitive pseudo-analysis. How do I know it? Unfortunately, I do know it, because this hamster died half a year later, and immediately the guy collapsed, start for a week, every second day, made a suicide attempt, and had to be immediately hospitalized. So, again, I claim that from here you can see how interesting is socially, ideologically, the functioning of a fetish. Fetishists are not idiots, like you have your fetish feet and see nothing else. No. Fetishists can be very brutal, cynical, realistic. They pretend that they accept the life the way it is. Why? Because secretly their fetish enables them to acquire a distance, not to, as we put it in traditional terms, fully emotionally assume what they rationally know. Uh, for example, my thesis is that if you look at modern top managers, especially in the United States, one of the model fetishes is uh, what I ironically call Western Buddhism, this kind of a vague 
spirituality, transcendental meditation, whatsoever. That's their fetish. They can play all the dirty market games, but deep in themselves they think, oh, I know this is just the game of appearances, the truth is in my inner self, and so on and so on. So again, you know, I claim that you cannot really be a fully cynical subject. No, on the contrary, we believe much more than we know that we believe. Like, you, you can think, I'm a totally cynical person, I don't care. But in your acts, there is a belief embodied. This category, again, is absolutely crucial today, today I claim. I'm sorry now if I repeat a short joke, which I repeated at least 20 times, but it's just the pure structure of this paradox. You know, Niels Bohr, quantum physics, once was visited at a country, in his, at his country house by a friend. There he had, above the entrance door, a horseshoe. In Central Europe, the superstitious item signaling uh, 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 destined, that's the idea, to prevent evil spirits to enter the house. And the friend asks him, why do you have this here? Are you stupid? Are you superstitious? And Niels Bohr gave him a perfect answer. No, I'm not stupid. I'm a scientist. Of course, I don't believe in it. But I have it there because I was told that it works even if you don't believe in it. That's <laughs> ideology today. We don't believe in it. We are all cynics. But actually, we believe in it much more than we ourselves are ready to admit that we believe. So how to, what can a theorist do here? How to deal with all this? I think uh, the first one who provided the right direction, although in a negative way, was my favorite Catholic theologist, your own, okay, not Englishman, but at least, he lived in London, uh, Gilbert Keith Chesterton. In his, uh, I think, The Man Who Was Thursday novel, he ironically, but nonetheless seriously, proposed to install, I quote, a special corps of policemen, policemen who are also philosophers. Here is a quote. The work of the philosophical policeman is at once bolder and more subtle than that of the ordinary detective. The ordinary detective goes to pothouses to arrest thieves. We go to artistic tea parties to detect pessimists. The ordinary detective discovers from a diary that a crime has been committed. We discover from a book of sonnets that a crime will be committed. We have to trace the origin of those dreadful thoughts that drive men on at last to intellectual fanaticism and intellectual crime. End of quote. Now this may sound a crazy eccentric idea, but would thinkers as different as Karl Popper, Theodor Adorno and Emmanuel Levinas would they not subscribe, all of them, to maybe a slightly changed version of this idea, where actual political crime is called totalitarianism and the philosophical crime is condensed in the notion of totality. The idea is that a straight road leads from philosophical notion of totality to political totalitarianism, or, as we usually ironically put it, the line from Plato to NATO, you know, like. <laughs> and the task of philosophical police is to discover from a book of Plato's dialogues or like Rousseau's treatise on social contract that a political crime will be committed. The ordinary political policeman goes to secret organizations to arrest revolutionaries. The philosophical policeman goes to philosophical symposia to detect the proponents of totality. So what should we reply to this accusation? I claim it holds. We are doing this intellectuals, just not in the way Chesterton thought. I, we are not destroying society. We are doing something much more uncanny. At our best, we so-called critical intellectuals, we are demonstrating, displaying, rendering visible how society undermines, necessarily undermines its own basic premises. Like, 
what is our task is to do this. You, now I will be critical, even why not, against the 20th century communism. It is not enough for a critical intellectual to say, oh, communism was a noble idea and it was a simple contingent misapplication what they did to it in the Stalinist Soviet Union. A critical intellectual should demonstrate how the distortion of a notion, of a noble idea, its falsification, its, mis- and its misinterpretation is somehow grounded in the idea itself. And if we do this with Stalinism, we should be honest enough, I claim, to do it also with today's global capitalism. No, I am not anti-capitalist in some abstract, naive sense. But in the simple sense of what? For example, when you talk about today's global capitalism, I would say, don't talk only about countries which function more or less developed Western countries. Mention also countries like, for example, the Democratic Republic of Congo, which doesn't even function as a country. You have local warlords who have all exclusive uh, contracts, of course, with big uh, international mostly mining companies because you know that the metals used in all our computers and so on mostly come from Congo and so on. So the point is that this country, which is a nightmare, it doesn't function as a state. It has the record number of children, drugged children turned into killing machines, etc. The point is to see the Republic of Congo not a simple deviation, oh, they are still primitive, this is not yet capitalism, but precisely as part of the totality of today's capitalism. And I used here precisely and with full awareness, as it were, the notion of totality. Because I claim that this is one of the crucial critical notions that we should rehabilitate today. Totality doesn't mean this kind of a rehabilitation of all the crimes, so that you say, but they fit into a global harmony and play their role. This is the usual accusation of Hegel. All the horrors are part of the divine plan, everything is justified. On the contrary, the Hegelian notion of totality means precisely that if you observe a phenomenon, to observe it in its totality means that you should include also all its degenerations, symptoms, uh, antagonisms, inconsistencies, and so on and so on. Totality means, for example, that you cannot say when you talk about capitalism, oh, places like Congo or today's China, these are falsifications, this doesn't count. No, it counts. All the inconsistencies, horrors, contradictions, and so on, have have to be included into the notion. So again, I'm coming back to my initial uh, question. How can we detect this, in a dialectical analysis, this necessary inner distortions, the way things go wrong, but for necessary reasons. You have a certain idea, you actualize it, it turns, more or less, up to a point maybe, but nonetheless, it turns into its opposite. I will not go now into boring uh, philosophical analysis. To conclude, I would just like to claim that what is needed here is something which was already deployed by Kant, the German idealist Immanuel Kant, as what he called the public use of reason, as opposed to the private use of reason. What Kant means means by public use of reason is not simply public talk and so on. No, for Kant, precisely, state institutions like the church law, legal system, are private use of reason, because they subordinate reason to some pre-established goal, organized religious life, uh, the legal system, and so on. For Kant, private use, sorry, public use of reason means use of reason subtracted from the entire field of social authority and hierarchy, where you can, as it were, freely 
think, deploying all the consequences, and so on and so on. Why is this so interesting? Because today, I claim in Europe, we are witnessing a great concentrated attack on this public use of reason. It's not only that you, by you I mean here in the United Kingdom, with your reform of proposed by the conservative government reform of uh, the university studies, tuitions, and so on, that you are practicing one of the most radical versions of it. The same process goes on all around Europe. What we are witnessing is precisely an attempt to change university as a space of Freedom, illusory as it was, I know I took my Marxist lesson, but nonetheless, uh, as the space of freedom into what? Into a socially useful factory of producing experts. What basically, to simplify it, society wants now, by society, of course, I don't mean all the people, but those in power, capital, and so on, is to turn universities into factories for producing experts. As a uh, French future minister told me years ago already, I was in a debate in France, he told me, take those demonstrations years ago, you remember, in the suburb of Paris where people were, uh, uh, the youth was burning cars in the suburbs of Paris. He told me, here we need intellectuals, we need psychologists to tell us how to control the mob, we need uh, urbanists to tell us how to restructure the suburbs so that crowds cannot gather and so on and so on. This is what they want us to do. Is this intellectual life? No. I think this precisely is, uh, this precisely is not what intellectuals should do and are needed doing today more than ever. A true intellectual doesn't resolve problems posed by others. The first step of intellectual work is precisely to reflect on the problem itself. What if the way we perceive a problem is already part of the problem? What if the way we spontaneously formulate a problem mystifies, uh, mystifies the problem? What's the underlying fact here? It is that I claim today uh, uh, not only Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Are we living in a strange time where the public space of debate itself is more and more privatized, is disappearing, but where uh, the functioning of ideology itself is changing. In what sense? Uh, if in classical capitalism the two main ideological mechanisms were law, legal system, and church, or sorry, education rather, education, education formed you as a bourgeois subject, legal system, system provided the coordinates of your freedom. Today, I claim it's market, the logic of market competition, which is 
progressively imposing itself as the hegemonic ideology. For example, in education, the classical bourgeois school, obligatory, equal for all citizens, is elevated above the market, is gradually being dismantled and replaced by this formula, lower costs, high efficiency, multiple forms of, uh, of private education, in the organization and legitimization of power. State is more and more presenting itself as simply a kind of a market operation where in elections we buy, we vo by votes, we as it were on the market select the best offer, the best party to do the job. Here I would like to make a couple of points which are crucial. First, when I say that what is today's predominant ideology is market neoliberalism. I'm not making the same boring leftist point about fighting neoliberalism. I think that we should do apropos neoliberalism. The same things think as I proposed apropos this Judeo-Christian legacy or whatever. We should always remember that, uh, that neoliberalism is an ideology not even an economic reality. Nobody really practices it. Do United States practice neoliberalism? On the contrary, look at their economy, not only under Obama, but already under Bush. Hundreds of billions spent for state interventions and so on and so on. Neoliberalism is, I think, mainly used to economize where you can, less education and so on, or to put the pressure on third world countries. So it's not a reality. Uh, what then, but nonetheless, in this ideological closure, of course there are cracks in it. Things are happening now from Egypt to Greece and so on. But there is still a problem here. I'm, I think it's wonderful what is happening now. Again, Greece, Spain, even here a little bit. Something, change is in the air. But what I'm really afraid of, what really scares me, is that what? Recently I read a, a kind of manifesto of a mass movement in Spain, and it depressed me very much of those who insist on the squares, protest, and so on. First, uh, not only this totally apolitical character of the protest, it's we don't care about politics, we are neither left nor right, we just want decent life, dignity, and so on and so on. My God, to be brutal, every fascist would have signed that. What worries me even more is that although these manifests are written in a way to dismantle, attack, renounce the entire political class. They like to emphasize we are neither left nor right, the entire political class uh, is corrupted and so on and so on. They nonetheless don't say we the people will do it. It's still a demand to someone. And this, you know, this is, I claim, a dangerous situation. When you attack all the politics and nonetheless you do not say, like, oh, we the people ourselves, we shall do it. But when you still address someone, then this place of the someone can be occupied by who knows whom. So we live in hopeful times, but at the same time in very dangerous times. The problem is even more crucial here for me, like it's easy to, now I will tell you something horrible if you are a radical, uh, radical leftist like me. It's easy to criticize capitalism, I do it all the time, but like do we really have, even in the vaguest outline, an alternate model to propose. Like my friends from Greece are telling me, you know, the situation is ter terrifying, also in a good sense now in Greece the system is almost disintegrating, people may take over. I told them, okay, wonderful, and what do you do then, the day after, when people take over, what will you do? Will you play just some Keynesianism, will you nationalize industries? 
They tell me, oh, it's wonderful what is happening in Greece. We have egalitarianism, direct democracy. I mean, how can you translate this into a new order, into coordinates of a new order? You have, again, on the one hand, this kind of a vague self-management notices, you know, local communities, people should take care of themselves and so on, which I think is precisely a model which cannot be universalized. You have, on the other hand, some kind of abstract anti-corruption capitalism, and our media are full of anti-capitalism. But I think this is the greatest triumph of capitalist ideology, where, you know, like, you cannot open a newspaper without reading about how Oh my God, this company is employing child labor, that company is polluting environment, that bank is uh, cheating, whatever. Yeah, but it's always as an individual accidental distortion of the system with some greedy bad guys behind to be blamed for. This is not enough. So is the change possible at all? Ah, here, nonetheless, I would like to conclude on a little bit more upbeat note. You know, when we read about what is possible and what is not possible, the first thing to note is how, in what a strange way, these two poles are disposed today. On the one hand, in the domains of, well, mostly I would say technology and private life, private pleasures, we are being constantly told by the media that practically everything is possible. You know, they say through biogenetic mechanisms or whatever, we will be soon able to clone organs, parts of our bodies. So you need your, a new heart. You will no longer need time to wait for somebody who is like you to die in an accident, whatever. We will, it will be possible for us to become practically immortal or just think about the domain of pleasures. Like, I'm not kidding. I, was, I recently met in New York a guy, a surgeon, whose specialty is to cut male penis into two. So you get two of them. So you can do it with two women at the same time, whatever. Uh, all, so here, everything is possible. On the other hand, when you turn to economy, almost everything is becoming impossible. You want to raise expenditure for healthcare, impossible, we will no longer be competitive, and so on and so on. So we are in this strange situation where on the one hand, hand almost everything seems possible technologically at the level of private lives, but in the matters of social life, economic decisions, and so on, practically nothing is considered uh, possible. And this, again, I claim, is the work of the material power force, rather, sorry, of ideology. I don't think that we can really provide precise new solutions and so on, what to do with global warming, my God, what do I know what to do, what to do with economic crisis and so on. But we can maybe do something much more important. We can just open up a little bit, the space, this confines of ideology, the space, just shift a little bit the coordinates of the space which tells us what is possible, what is impossible, and so on. Just, for example, to do something to, to make it palpable or sensible how maybe we will not be become immortal, maybe not every one of us wants to have a double penis, but maybe we can nonetheless spend a little bit more for healthcare and education or whatsoever. No, just, you know, just to, this may sound secondary, but I think it's extremely important. Just to, we cannot provide the solution, but we can, as it were, open up the space for thinking about possible solutions and so on and so on. It may sound a very easy thing to do, but I claim, again, in our ideological closure, it's maybe the most difficult thing to do. Why? Because I'm not a paranoiac. Again, great things are happening, social unrest and so on. But nonetheless, don't underestimate the amount or how far ideology has penetrated our daily lives. For example, for me, ideology, yeah, 
ideology are not these big things, you know, fight for freedom or whatever. Nobody takes that seriously. The ideology is what? To conclude with my example that I refer to all the time. Ideology is going to the Starbucks coffee. Why? You know what happens when you enter it. You get all those posters there informing you, yes, our coffee is more effect, more expensive, but... 1% goes to some stupid Guatemala children, 1% to save trees, and so on and so on. This is ideology at its wonderful purest. In the old times, we were at least aware that we are consumers, you know. So you have to do something, help, charity, socially conscious. Starbucks has come with a wonderful ideological mechanism. Why not include into the price of the commodity the anti-consumerist uh, solidarity, whatever, aspect, so that the more you consume, the more at the same time you display social, you know, social solidarity and so on are already part of the commodity price. Here is the material force of ideology. And I'm here suspect even of green movement, sometimes making things out of best intentions. Where do you have their ideology? Let me be brutally frank. I'm sorry if this line is known to some of you. Why do we really buy those half-rotten apples who cost twice more than those wonderful genetically manipulated apples? Is it really that we believe that they are substantially more healthy, better? I claim many of us do not believe it. We are too cynical. But, you know, it makes us feel warm, isn't it nice? By buying an apple, I'm doing something for the humanity also. I participate in, participate in the great movement of helping Mother Earth and all that and all that. Here is the materiality of ideology. Here we have to win. So, believe me or not, I finished. Thanks very much. <laughs> Now I think it's like half an hour to pretend to, that we live in democracy. No? Absolutely, Up yes, absolutely. Um, we got any questions? Brief questions, please. Uh, hi, you're, you're talking in front of a, a majority bourgeois capitalist, possibly socialist um, audience tonight. And uh, granted, this is an IQ function, whilst across the, the city, there's uh, the SW, the Socialist Workers' Party Marxist conference is going on, which I recognise you, you've not been invited to, possibly because... I was. They, I just you were? Yeah. OK. But, um, <laughs> but, but this is my point. Uh, why do the British left sects not get your theories, uh, like the SWP and the AWL, or Workers' Power and such, such, such like? Um, what ideology is functioning there? Um, why is the left UK socialists, not the left liberal capitalists, got it so wrong? Okay, I'm not sure I got all the background of your question, like all the milk or coffee, sorry, all the milk or cream implied in it as absent. What I only want to say is that in a certain way I have, of course, a certain respect for Socialist Workers' Party and so on and so on, but nonetheless they are for me a little bit of still in love with the 20th century. I think the 20th century is over. Okay, everybody knows this, but in a, not just calendar sense. This means all the big models for emancipatory movement, not only the two big official ones, that is to say uh, Stalinist or whatever you call it, state, communism and social democratic welfare state, but now comes the more tricky part. Also, the dream of the entire 20th century left. 20th century radical left, Trotskyist and so on, was always ready to criticize state socialism, Stalinism, social democracy. The dream was that finally there will be a moment, we just have to be patient, where workers will arise, install a kind of a direct self-management, democracy, and so on and so on. I think that dream also had to fall. 20th century is over. So I don't participate in these dreams which at their most ridiculous 
not many Trotskyists buy it, only some of them, takes the form of, I'm consciously offering you a caricature now, but this is the model. Like, if only Lenin were survived three, four years longer and were to make pact with Trotsky to get rid of Stalin, oh, that would have been it, and so on. I'm not saying it wouldn't make a difference, but I doubt if it would make such a great difference. I think that without renouncing great, enthusiastic, emancipatory moments in 20th century social democracy, communism, and so on, I nonetheless think that in its totality that form was a failure, that we have to as I wrote somewhere, I forgot where I, as you reminded me, write too many books, that, uh, that, uh, that that forum is over. And this is, again, my only problem with them. You know, like, whenever something happened in Eastern Europe, my Trotskyite friends tried to convince me, like, in Serbia. No, it wasn't Milosevic who, it wasn't, uh, who overthrew Milosevic. It was workers. It was only later kidnapped by nationalists or they claim solidarity in Poland. No, this was originally workers' revolution. It was only later that it was kidnapped by the church and so on and so on. They see a little bit too much the, how should I put it, revolution around the corner just then in the last moment kidnapped by the bad guys. I'm here much more, if you want, a pessimist. A pessimist in the sense that the left, let's be quite frank, does not yet have, and of course you cannot have it in detail, I'm not demanding the impossible, that you make the least exact of what to do, but, okay, to be cynical, as already hinted at, I think, let's say that today, as already said, a government in Greece collapses and then some kind of people, committees, whatever, takes over. What would they have done? What could they have done? I mean, will, will they be able, sorry, in the future, to do what? Play Keynesianism, nationalize, what? And this is the big problem for me in Egypt, you know, to keep up this upbeat morals. I wrote that naive text, Miracle of Tahrir Square in Guardian and so on, but let's not forget that the true struggle is going on now. Who, how will all that great sublime upheaval, what will be its results in institutions, organization of social life, and so on? These sublime moments are cheap for me. They are beautiful. You cry, how beautiful. All, was bring, all life was brought to a stop, millions in solidarity. What interests me much more is the day after. And here, I think, the left does not yet have not even a general idea. It, you just hear this, like, either it's more Keynesianism or it's some kind of a vague local self-organization, communities or whatever. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I am not aware of any, even at the very general level, viable model. And that's, if you want to me, that's my problem with Socialist Workers' Party. They act as if they know what to do. I don't know and I don't think they really know. Thank you. There was a gentleman over there. Um, a lady. Yeah. Um, my question is sort of in three parts. Um, I was really intrigued by the fact that you refer a lot to the ideology and, and the fact that um, people are really sort of taken in by a particular ideology. Um, and I was thinking about your example about Starbucks and thinking, well, yes. isn't it the case that people know that what they're doing is buying a coffee that will then, in some sort of uh, self-serving way, make them feel better about themselves? So I kind of wonder what you mean by ideology if it isn't in the Marxist sense of being um, some sort of smokescreen, if yeah. we know why we're buying something. And then I wonder if that in itself is more why it's ideology and not discourse... Uh, that you're referring to. And finally, I wonder um, whether there is anywhere we can move beyond ideology, because you, you refer to yourself as a pessimist, but I wonder if ideology is in some sense the villain of the piece, then what, what can we get to after it? A uh, very nice question. But let me first ask you, uh, sorry, no, ask you, just clarify something. Uh, I think this precisely was my 
point that, and this is how so-called cynical reason functions. Here, although he is uh, definitely anti-communist conservative, I respect Peter Sloterdijk, the German guy who already 30 years ago now, I think, in his first big book, Critique of Cynical Reason, proposed this formula turning around Marxist formula Sie wissen das nicht, aber sie tun es. They don't know what they are doing it, but they are doing it. And Sloterdijk's formula was, they know very well what they are doing, but nonetheless they are doing it. Like, you know, it's no longer this kind of, a, in naive sense, false consciousness in the sense of you don't know what you are doing. It's more a mystery of following something although you know it's false. Like, it's a lie, but nonetheless you act as if it's the truth. This is the mystery today. This is why I think I mentioned before all those paradoxes of objectified belief. Like, you don't believe, but you follow a belief uh, materialized in your social practical activity. And I claim Marx knew it. I've endlessly written about it, but nonetheless, I think this is the still eternal actuality of Marx's notion of commodity fetishism. Read Capital carefully what Marx says there. He doesn't say we treat a commodity as a magical object, but in reality, commodity is just, I don't know, a knot, part of a network of social relations, and so on. No, the, for Marx, illusion is not in what we think. We can be realists. No, stu no capitalist is as stupid as to think, oh, commodity is something magical or whatever. Illusion is not in what we think. Illusion is in what we are doing. You may think you know what it is, and you can really know what it is. This is why I claim when, the, when you treat ideology as a discourse with a pretension at truth, and you combat it at that level, you lose. My eternal example, sorry if my, I repeat myself, let's say we are in Germany in 37. I am, I will be the bad guy. I'm an anti-Semitic Nazi, you are a good liberal, whatever, leftist, no? And you try to convince me that I am wrong in my anti-Semitism. Let's say you are, you choose the path of convincing me, look back, these are prejudices that you say about Jews. Jews are not, re not really like that. Like measuring the truth value of my statements about Jews. The moment you do this, you've already sold your soul to the devil. You totally miss the point. Because let's imagine such a conversation. The result can only be, could only have been somewhere in between. You will have to concede that all Jews are not good. Of course they are not, my God, no. You will, and when, for example, when the Nazis claimed Jews are exploiting us, well, some Jews were rich, so in a totally formal sense, they were exploiting Germans. Jews were seducing German girls. Well, I hope they were. I hope they had good time. You know what I mean. Like, but you see my point. The true problem is not are what, is what Nazis are saying about the Jews true or not. Ideology is not decided at this level, so that if it's not true but just prejudices its ideology. I will go now up to the end, although this is not the case here, obviously. Even if, but it's not, even if most of what Nazis were telling about the Jews were to be true, anti-Semitism would still have been a reprehensible ideology. Because what makes it an ideology is not its truth value or not. It's why the Nazis, in order to sustain their entire vision, needed a figure like a Jew. You know, it's the same like Lacan has this wonderful, I'm sorry, it's male chauvinist, but nonetheless example, where he says, if a husband is pathologically jealous, suspecting that his wife is sleeping around with multitudes, in the negri sense, multitudes of men, and if, even if all his suspicions are true, the wife is really doing this, his jealousy is still a pathology. Because... The point, the pathology of jealousy is not decided at the level, is it true or not? But where does, and where does his fixation on jealousy come from? 
why does he need the form of jealousy to sustain his identity, the identity of his self? No? At this level, I think that we can fight ideology because, again, breaking out of ideology is not this question of aren't we all caught in some ideologies? Can we break out into a totally objective view of how things really are? The opposite of ideology is not how things really are. Okay. I don't have time to go on, but along these lines. Hello. Uh, you were talking earlier on about the marketization of uh, university education. Um, I was wondering, do you think... I ironically, that was irony. Sorry. I call democratization what is going now here. Marketization. Market, uh, marketization, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was just wondering, do you think we should go back to a period like in the 19th century where yes, everyone happened. studied the humanities, philosophy, the classics? Uh, not quite, but I... No, but why, why do you put it in these terms as if the only choice is 19th century or where it is moving now? I think in very simple terms that, for example, the system that we had in the 70s and 80s, I'm not saying it was good, it's definitely better than what is coming now. I mean, I, I at least think this because, and this is not any kind of hardline Marxism, quite the opposite. I'm here very naively pro-intellectual. I think that even in hard sciences, practically no great inventions were produced in this plan's way. Let's train the, the experts. From Einstein onwards, or really great bread where what we call in rational, what they call, I don't pretend to be one of them, although I like them, in rational choice theory, necessary by, or byproducts, you know, like, or to put it in popular military terms, collateral damage, you know, like you research something and quite by chance, oh my God, you stumble upon something else. And I think don't underestimate how even in, the top modern science, and even where it may appear that everything has to be done in a large plant way, like all those CERN laboratories, particle accelerators, and so on and so on. So uh, this is my problem. You, I'm not saying most of us should study, or like at that point in Oxford, I think I read somewhere that till the early 20th century, or wrote even that, if for students of Cambridge and Oxford, their point of honor was that even privately they were speaking Latin to each other. No, I'm not saying we should move to that. All I'm saying is that we need this kind of a open space of apparently useless. You have to have a free space. Of, or to give you another example of the same logic. The reason I don't like Amazon.com is that this is like this new expert education. You buy there mostly only books you already in advance want to buy. Like but I cannot even imagine such a great number of books that really meant a lot to me. I stumbled upon them in a much more open, contingent way, you know, like I was looking what I wanted to check up, then I looked around a little bit, and so on and so on. This is also, for example, for me, but I'm not a conservative here, but nonetheless, the horror of checking news on Yahoo or I don't know where, uh, the digital news, because there, again, you have to make choices in the sense that you are interested in this topic. You, I like precisely the newspaper experience where you get what you want, but also many things that you don't want. And precisely by this totally contingent jumping up and down, you usually discover the most precious thing and so on. I really am worried here. No wonder that, isn't this sad, to give you a concrete example, I think we will be lagging soon behind United States here. Don't underestimate the United States. They have there a group, which I don't like very much, but they are nonetheless not idiots, the so-called Pittsburgh Hegelians, Robert Brandom, John uh, McDowell, and so on. And one of the students there told me that already around half of their students are Germans. You know what this means? You know where we are? I mean, I don't mean this cynically, it's great for the night, but nonetheless that if a German student, German, today wants to understand Hegel, 
the best of them go to United States to do it. That's, that's the result of it. So again, I'm not making here any big ultra-Marxist point or whatever. I'm just claiming that, and this is for me precisely the big lesson of Stalinism, that over-specialization precisely engenders its opposite. It's not productive. Now, my God, I will even be pro-capitalist. I will say that the advantage of capitalism was precisely its, you know, apparently irrational expenditures and so on and so on. The deepest insight into Stalinism for me, one of the, is that you, we should totally drop these liberal cliches that in Stalinism we were all turned into automatic, like, puppet subject, every free thought was squashed, everything was planned. Total stupidity. For if you read or talk with old people who lived in Soviet Union or read really good books on Stalinism, you will discover that beneath the surface of total control and planning, Stalinist Soviet Union was much more chaotic and disorganized than a Western liberal democracy. Nothing functioned, so you had all the time to behave as an extreme egotist to improvise all the time and so on and so on. So it's just common sense that I was, I was telling you there. Well, I think on that note, um, we'll say thank you very much, Slavoj, for an absolutely fascinating and brilliant talk. I am grateful to you and uh, sincerely. Sincerely, I want to apologize because I couldn't present you any really radically new stuff, but if you really like my work, you will like the reason, because I'm totally in a kind of a half-dazed, uh, drugged state, because for the last year, apart from some talk here and there, I was doing a mega book on Hegel, I'm now finishing it, just correcting 800 pages on Hegel. This will be my last. Totally useless. Deserves no use a round of applause for, for that. Like. <laughs> Thanks very much. I appreciate it.